Good morning. We're back in Acts 7. If you remember, the last time we only covered verse 23, and the whole session was about the idea of visitation. If you weren't here, it's up on the internet. And we saw that from Genesis on through the Bible, the concept of visitation is very important. In order to summarize that, I will say this. When God comes, whether it's in a theophany or the person of Christ, God incarnate, when God visits, nobody can be neutral. Either salvation or damnation happens. One or the other. When God comes, it's a crucial time. Kairos. Qualitative time. The crucial moment. And remember the lament where Jesus lamented over Jerusalem and said that they hadn't recognized the time of visitation. And what happened? Well, they were ransacked eventually by the Romans. Judgment came because they didn't accept the offer of messianic salvation through Christ. If you didn't hear that, we had a really nice discussion about the idea of visitation. And you can go back and listen if you want. But today, we'll start with verse 24. First, let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for allowing us to look in to what you have said about what you have done and to inquire into things that are marvelous, marvelous things about your plan of messianic salvation. Lord, may we understand the scripture as inspired by your Holy Spirit. May we believe and may we obey. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have 23. It says, and this is where we got that idea of visitation. It says when he was 40 years old, Moses, that is, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So, again, we covered this. Let's go to verse 24. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Now, taking up our theme of visitation, now, at 40 years old, Moses visits. Remember, he was raised in Pharaoh's household. But now he's identifying as a Hebrew. And remember that when there's a visitation, we either see and recognize the time of visitation or we don't, and then that's bad. So what's going on in Stephen's speech is that Moses is the one who prefigures Christ. 
And in his first visit, Moses is not accepted. He's rejected. And they don't understand. And in that way, Moses is a type of Christ. Because in Christ's first visit, they did not recognize or understand the time of visitation. So the theme that we find here in Stephen's speech is that salvation doesn't come until the second visit. Moses' second visit is when they're brought out of Egypt. And Acts holds open the idea that Christ would yet visit a second time and that if Israel believed then, Israel would be saved. You and I, as premillennialists, believe that that happens at the end of Daniel's 70th week, when they look upon him whom they pierced and they mourn for him. So there's yet a second visit, and at that time, salvation will come, but not until a lot of bad things happen. Daniel's 70th week is no cup of tea. Remember last week, Eric talking about that? Okay, Eric's busy setting up. I need a reader. Norm, you got an open Bible. Could you turn to Hebrews 11, 24 through 26? Uh, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Keep reading. One more verse. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Yeah, see, uh, Moses had the opportunity to be a great leader in Pharaoh's household. But according to Hebrews 11, rather than taking on that identity and cashing in, Pharaoh was the greatest king in the known world, and all the riches of Egypt were there for him. Moses could have cashed in. He could have had money. He could have had leisure. He could have had power. He could have had pleasure. But Moses, who was a type of Christ, at 40 years old, identified with the slaves with the Hebrew slaves who were really his brothers. Notice that? He supposed his brothers would understand. And so, on the one hand, he's giving up status and pleasure in Egypt in order to endure ill treatment with the people of God, as it says there. But the tragedy is as Stephen lays this out, rather than the Hebrews being grateful, say, wow, we have a protector. Here is one right from Pharaoh's household who's on our side. But they did not understand that God was giving them salvation. 
They didn't see it. They did not recognize the time of visitation. And because of that, they turned against Moses. Stephen portrays Moses' action as righteous. See, if you read the Exodus account, it sounds a little different. He kind of looks this way and that way. It's a little bit sinister. He's hiding what he's doing. But Stephen highlights the fact that he was there to bring salvation. And that helps us understand how to read narrative. See, Luke's account of Stephen is telling us something that's important and for his theme in Luke-Acts. And we need to understand it that way. And so Moses is identifying with the people of God. I'm going to quote Dr. Parsons. He says this, Rejection as a result of ignorance is found elsewhere in Acts. He says, see 3.17 and 28. 26 or 27. What was it that his kinsfolks did not understand? Stephen claims Moses' kinsfolk did not understand that God was bringing salvation to them through his efforts. By so interpreting the actions of Moses in Exodus 2, Stephen here makes a very significant point. The action of Moses is more than an act of filial kindness. It is the righteous action of God's emissary intended to effect God's salvation. So Stephen's point, this is me, is that like the Jews in the time of Moses, those in Stephen's day did not recognize that God sent Jesus to rescue them. They didn't recognize it. Wait until you see how Stephen's speech is laid out. It's central to the book of Acts. I was thinking when I was looking ahead, oh, I'll just summarize all of that, you know, 60, 70 verses. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is important. And I found some stuff just reading it from the Greek that's utterly amazing how Stephen is doing this. So, What he's using, if you want to keep this in mind, is the Jewish idea of corporate solidarity. Okay? They own what their fathers did. So the people in Egypt are the fathers of the Sanhedrin to whom Stephen is speaking. And Stephen is going to make a point. God said, Moses, they didn't understand. And God sent Jesus, and you didn't understand. So you're just like your fathers. Now, I'm going to show you later. I have a slide for this in one of these PowerPoints. Um, Five times early in Stephen's speech, Stephen uses the phrase, our fathers. Stephen identifies with his Jewish audience. It's not only their fathers, our fathers. 
Our fathers didn't recognize. Our fathers rejected Moses. Our fathers were brought out of Egypt. Our fathers made the golden calf. Our fathers didn't listen to God. But then, I've given you a preview, when Stephen gets to the rejection of Messiah, he changes and he indicts them and he said, you're just like your fathers. Why did he change? I'm going to eventually have a slide for this. Because Stephen doesn't identify with rejecting Christ because he didn't. He identifies with those Jewish fathers. But when Christ came, Stephen believed. And so did the apostles. So now it's your fathers crucified, the one God sent and didn't recognize he was bringing salvation. And they got so angry, they martyred Stephen. It's ingenious. Now, that one I just saw in the Greek. I didn't even find that in any of the commentaries. But a good reading is a good reading, even if I happen to stumble on it by some accident. You know, I love the scripture. I love what it says. It's telling us something. The way Luke lays this speech out of Stephen is making points that we need to know. We need to believe. It's about salvation. Now, let's go to the next slide. Acts 7, 26 and 27, quoting from the ESV. Just so you know, when I teach and preach, you're going to notice. I'll always tell you what translation. Now, I suppose somebody could say, well, you jump around because you're cherry picking. That's not exactly how it works. All of my Bible studies start from the Greek. I lay out the Greek text, and that's where all the study happens. And then I read about it, and I see how it's all parsed out and how it, how it lays out. And then once I believe that I understand what the Greek is saying, I look for whatever English translation I think is the most accurate. And then I'll choose that one. Sometimes there are certain words that need to be taken literally, and some of them don't or whatever. So I use the ESV because I think it's the best in this particular verse. Not the other one, not that the other ones are necessarily wrong. So let me read it. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside. Don't forget that. The same Greek word comes up later, to thrust aside. Repeated terms help us understand meaning. He thrust him aside. Who did he thrust aside? Moses. Get out of here. We don't want you. Saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? So Moses, after 40 years, took up his role as mediator, but was rejected. The way Stephen quotes this portrays Moses' actions as righteous. And Stephen wants to make a connection between Moses' flight to Midian and the Israelite rejection of him. They rejected their divinely chosen leader. They put his life in danger 
and they forced him to flee. So that's the point Stephen's making. This doesn't invalidate Exodus where it says he looked this way and that way. There's kind of a clandestine way of saying it. But the fact is he did flee to Midian. Now you and I know, because we've read the whole story, that Moses going to Midian for 40 years was part of God's purpose. Remember, God had told Abraham that after 400 years, the people would be brought out. And it was still too early. And God was getting Abraham, excuse me, God was getting Moses ready for his role. And so he spends these 40 years until the incident of the burning bush. In Stephen's speech, Moses' life is divided into three 40-year periods. The first 40, Pharaoh's household. The next 40, Midian. The next 40, with the people, leading them out of Egypt and bringing them to Sinai and receiving the law. And then, of course, the rebellion in the wilderness, and Moses ended up dying without going into the promised land. I assume you know these things. Now, I'm going to read a little preview, if you want to look ahead, because it's going to take me a few weeks to get to this. So I want you to know where we're going. Acts 7, 51 to 53. This is where we're going. I just mentioned this. A little preview. I'm quoting Stephen. He says this. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Stop right there. Why would that convict them? Because Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6 says that they need to be circumcised in heart. Eric's preached about that in Romans. And so he's saying, you don't have circumcised hearts, but you're supposed to. You're stiff-necked. Your hearts aren't circumcised. You're boasting in outward circumcision, but your heart has been untouched. Quote, again, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers, here's the change. Now as your fathers, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that's Messiah, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Wow. Stephen is speaking as a prophet of God. He could just as well be Jeremiah indicting his hearers for being lawbreakers. These are the ones who are fastidious. Is that the right word about keeping the law? 
I think so. I heard that word somewhere once. They, they were diligent. They, well, we keep the law. And Stephen says, you got a one big problem. Your hearts are not circumcised. You're hard-hearted. Stephen's debate that led to his martyrdom is about whose fathers, who's the fathers of us. When it came to the history, Stephen would own that five times. Our fathers, our fathers, our fathers, five times. Now, when it comes to Messiah, see your fathers, because Stephen had repented, he'd come to Christ. And he's saying that any of you, Sanhedrin, Jewish leadership, who refuses to come to Christ, are like the rebellious Israelites in the wilderness who made the golden calf. You're no different. You're idolaters. You're rebels. You're stiff-necked. You're uncircumcised in heart. And you're just like the wicked people in your past. See, they identified themselves with Moses, with Ezekiel, with Jeremiah, with Daniel, with Ezra. In their minds, we're the good guys. Now, you can see that just in a human dynamic. If you belong to a political party and you're dyed in the wool part of that party, whatever your leaders do, it may be wicked, but you can't see it. Oh, yeah, wonderful. And anybody else is looking, that's wicked. How can you say it's wonderful? Because, see, when you strongly identify, then you just see the good guys. Or you just see the good attributes. And you're blinded. Whereas if you looked at it objectively, you could look at this whole thing and see that Jesus was the greater Moses. And that he visited that he did many miracles, and that he predicted his own resurrection from the dead, that he was bodily raised, and that he's the one who sends the Holy Spirit. He's the one who circumcises the heart. And you would come to him, and God would circumcise your heart. Then you would be like Moses and Daniel and Jeremiah and the prophets. But as it is, you're like the ones who persecuted the prophets. That led to Stephen's martyrdom. I want to help us read. It's all here. We have to read and see Luke's point. And that's where this is going. So they reject Christ, just like their fathers rejected Moses. 28 and 29. Acts 7. Again, the ESV. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? They said to Moses. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Okay, so this begins the second 40-year segment of Moses' life. Now, the passage that Norm read says, kind of as a big summary, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
suffered, he, he chose rather to suffer ill treatment with the people of God. Now, that's a summary, but this goes over 120 years, right? 120 years. 40, Pharaoh's household, intervenes, flees, 40 in Midian, taking care of the flock, 40 bringing them out, going to Sinai, received the law as delivered by angels, ultimately not allowed to go into the promised land, but being the mediator of the old covenant, that whole, whole 120-year life, the author of Hebrews says, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, chose rather to suffer ill treatment with the people of God. And the Christian life is just like that. We can be called whatever we want. The popular people, the accepted people, the worldly people, and claim status in the eyes of the world, the equivalent of the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and get along with everybody. Or, like Moses, we can choose to suffer ill treatment with the people of God. And the people you work with will say, oh, you're one of them. Have you ever heard that? Oh, you're one of them. You're one of them disgusting born-again types. Amen. I plead guilty. And it has an impact. We're not the same. We're not the same people, and they can tell. And sometimes we come under attack because they're trying to shout away their own guilt. They don't want to believe that somebody can have their sins forgiven and truly know God. Because if that's true, then the question is, well, why don't I come to Christ? They don't want to hear that. When I was converted in July of 1971, I was working at a feed plant. I worked midnight shift. I volunteered for that. I loved working hard and fast. And uh, at night, there was just a few of us, plus I could play golf all day. How good is that? See, when you're 20 years old, you don't need sleep. Well, I did, but not much. But I was converted in the middle of that summer, working at a feed plant. I was about to enter my sophomore year at Iowa State University. And I remember standing at the loading dock. These big semis had come in, and we'd unload them. And that didn't happen often at night shift, but this one time it did. And there were guys from across the street at the soybean mill. This was Land of Lakes. And they were over because sometimes they had to get trucks loaded. And this guy was standing there, and I told them about coming to Christ right there with these guys. I had just come to Christ. Oh, I'm a Christian. I came to Christ. Because they wanted to know why I wasn't swearing, cursing, and blaspheming anymore. I said, well, I came to Christ. And this one guy started mocking me along with all the other people. I may have told you this story before. Big old plowboy, you know, twice as big as me, started mocking me and threatening me. I figured, well, it goes to the territory. Well... The year 2000, we had a all-school class reunion down in Sheldon, Iowa, and I went down. 
And I was at this big picnic. And here this big plowboy came up to talk to me. So just vaguely remembered him. And he says, I need to ask your forgiveness. And I said, well, I don't even remember why you would be asking that. He said, well, when you became a Christian, I was one of those guys standing there mocking you. And he said, later, I became a Christian. And now you're my brother in Christ. Please forgive me that I mocked you. Oh, I said, I forgive you. God bless your brother. I was so excited. You don't know. You don't know these things. Why are these people so hostile? Why was Moses rejected? Well, 40 years later, God had a plan. And he was going to use Moses. We don't know. And so we need to identify as the Christians, be willing to suffer ill treatment with the people of God, and we'll see what God does. The pleasures of Egypt aren't worth it. Do you believe that? It is not worth it for one second. So when I get into heaven, I'm sure that big plowboy will be up there too eventually, and we'll be one in Christ. I shouldn't call him a plowboy, but he was a big Iowa. And uh, I was skinny and little. So here's Moses fleeing, becoming an exile. And this is the pilgrim motif. There's Eric. (laughs) Yeah, he's one. (laughs) Two 50-pound bags of feed, one over each shoulder. I can only do one at a time. (laughs) We were talking about a plowboy I used to know. Big Iowa. Yeah, that's a compliment. (laughs) Now, even worse, turn with me to Hebrews 11, 13. Now, it says here that Moses became an exile. So let's look at the pilgrim motif. It says this, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them, that's a cool word, welcome in the Greek, welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Hebrews 11.13 is given as an example for us. We're to view ourselves as pilgrims. Those who have given up the idea of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, willing to suffer mistreatment of the people of God, not receiving the promises now, We've received promises, but not the eternal ones. And we may not be so great as far as our condition in this world. It varies. There's different kinds of Christians and what they go through. But we're not promising anything great. But we do have promises for the future. It'll be great in heaven. Not everybody has a long, healthy life. 
not everybody has wealth. Eric told me a story of a brother who just, you did the funeral for, came here, died at a fairly young age, and he had spent years working at this synagogue. And the brother told Eric, now you have to preach, did you tell us at the funeral? You have to preach the gospel at my funeral, because if you don't, when you get to heaven, I'm going to kind of find you and talk to you about that. (laughs) Well, there was a brother who suffered ill treatment of the people of God, died in faith without receiving a lot of temporal benefits, but identified as an exile. The term for exile is also used about us, in 1 Peter 2.11, 1 Peter 2.11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 1 Peter 2.11. So we're exiles, but we're still tempted the same way everybody else is. The lower of Pharaoh's household is sitting right there. And we have things that could attract us. Lusts, passions. They wage war against our own soul. And we're facing the same kind of decision Moses did. I can get the best I can out of Pharaoh's household, nuts to these Hebrews, They're never going to be anything but a bunch of slaves. Or we can understand that it's only right that we're sojourners and exiles. And that all these things the Gentiles enjoy are worth giving up to suffer ill treatment with the people of God. It's worth it. Eternity is real. Promises of God are real. We will never, never, ever ultimately regret abstaining from the passions of the flesh. They may be sitting right there, ripe for the taking, like in Corinth. Go right down to the pagan temples right there. They have raucous parties, temple prostitutes, anything somebody could want. And somebody is going to have to say no to that and suffer ill treatment the people of God. Now, Exodus 2.14 shows that Moses was afraid because his deed was known in Egypt, so he ran. See, God's providentially in charge of all things. And one thing we learned from the Moses narrative is that God gets us to the right place at the right time despite us. Oh, yeah. God was still keeping that promise to Abraham. It was a little too soon. Moses flees. He spends 40 years out there. But God wasn't done. My friends, we're still here. God's not done. You don't know what God's going to do in your life in the future. Neither do I. I don't know why things are like they are. I don't know why I didn't have a voice for two months. But if you make 
your own decisions in a godly way based on what you know to be true, God will use even the hardships in ways that we don't even know. In my case, I thought, well, I can't preach, I can't teach, I'll write sermons and articles. I don't know. So the article got written. I trust that God's going to use it. I'm thanking God I have a voice today. Hallelujah. So thank you for your prayers. Why did it take two months? I don't know. But when I got the voice, I'm going to use it. 30 and 31, Acts 7. Now, 40 years had passed. You know, that's a long time to be sitting out in the wilderness of Midian, just running around with the livestock. Think back. 40 years. Wow, 40 years. Where was I? 1976. I was a pietist living in a Christian commune. Wow. Oh, yeah. I was trying to be the holiest person I could be. And it took five years to figure out the best thing I could be was a sinner saved by grace. That wasn't any better than any other Christian. Forty years. So here we are. Forty years. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And Moses saw it. Now remember, Stephen's preaching this to people that already know it. He's recounting the history of Israel to the leaders of Israel. They, all, they know all this, but it's going to a point. The point is, Jesus is the new Moses. And are you going to treat him like our fathers treated Moses? That's the point. So uh, there's a flame of fire in a bush. Now we know that was Yahweh in a theophany, visibly present, talking objectively to Moses. See, Moses didn't become the lawgiver of Israel, the mediator of the Old Covenant, by thoughts in his head. At the burning bush, he saw with his eyes and heard with his ears. Up on Sinai, he saw with his eyes and heard with his ears. As Dr. Heiser says in his book, when God is going to appoint somebody to be his spokesperson, he always does a personal interview. Yes, he does a personal interview. What do you think happened to the apostles? Jesus, God in the flesh, personally interviews them who will be his sent ones. Jesus appeared to Paul as one born out of time and does a personal in-the-flesh interview. God interviews those he sends. People think Moses just heard ideas in his brain. It's not the way it is. He saw the fire. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, he actually saw God in a theophany, Theophany means visible manifestation of the invisible God. 
there came a voice of the Lord. He heard. The word past in the Greek, I have this on my slide, is plerao in the Greek. It means fulfilled. Stephen is using words to make us think about God's purposes being fulfilled. Yes, Harry. God encouraged me with this as I was listening to you. I was, I was thinking, you know what, when originally the promise was he'd deliver them in 400 years, they'd be in the slavery. And then I thought, well, Moses, you know, didn't he start at 400 years? And then 40 years later, he came to deliver them. But it occurred to me, no, when Moses first spoke, it they were delivered. Ready. Because yeah. when Christ first came, we're delivered from sin. And then he's coming back yeah. to bring us to there's the a life. There's a time space between the visitations. Yeah. Yeah. And now... What, what's interesting, Eric, and uh, the other Eric over here will be talking about this, about Daniel's 70th week, is there's an indefinite time. The Bible doesn't say, right? There's the 69 weeks to go right up to the destruction of the temple. The 70th starts at some unknown future time. It's not specified. Now, other things were, how long would they be in Babylonian captivity 70 years remember when it was getting close because of jeremiah said that daniel started reading book of jeremiah oh it says 70 years and we're going to get to go back so what did he do start praying daniel chapter 9 he prays because we know christ is returning doesn't mean we don't pray and in our case we don't know exactly when so fulfilled is God's purposes. It's narrated in Exodus 3. So the angel in the bush is I am who is Yahweh. God manifested to Moses. See, we're making a lot of progress. We only got through one verse last time. Acts 7, 32, 33, still in the ESV. Here's God saying this. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled, did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So here's the God of your fathers to Moses, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why mention them all the time? To remind Moses of the promises. The promise made to Abraham that he would have a seed, the one and the many, many descendants, and land was reiterated to Isaac, it was reiterated, I mean, excuse me, to uh, Jacob, yes. And so this is just a reminder of the promises of God. The more I study, the more I'm convinced that the promises of God are so important. Oh, if we could just get that. As many of the promises of God are yea and amen, meaning when God says something, he means it. He's not like the pagan gods who are fickle. And then they say, well, I didn't really mean it. God always means it. 
he says it, he'll do it. I got a nice email from a CIC reader. Because the last couple of articles, I talked about the promises of God. And this one lady, God bless her, with such a great email. She said, well, I had all of this confusion, all this problem. And all these people tell me I had to, I was going to get demons because I had to go through some checklist. You know, everything's about your own past. And she said, I didn't get anywhere. Then I read and I found out that what I'm supposed to do is believe the promises of God. The light goes on. Oh, really? Instead of looking into my own past, trying to figure everything out, which is a jumbled mess, I look to God and believe his promises. Moses couldn't look to himself, and sometimes he did, and it didn't do him any good. Well, they won't listen to me. I tried before. They rejected me. They're stubborn people. They won't listen to God. Why send me to them? But but instead, Moses believed the promises of God. God said that they'd be 400 years and that God would bring them out. So you and I, beloved brothers and sisters, we can be like the saints in the Bible that are commended and believe the promises of God. Daniel believed the promise of God when Jeremiah said 70 years. So he started praying and and knowing God is going to take action. I believe that Jesus is coming again. The mockers are going to say, where's the promise of his coming? You Christians are always talking about that. I don't see Jesus. I don't see anything changing. Do you believe the promises of God? Amen. Now, God's present. By the way, this is an underlying thing going on. I have it on my PowerPoint. This is really amazing to me as I've been studying this in the Greek. There's a little phrase, this place, this place. Here it says, the place is holy ground. See, the Sanhedrin is going to accuse the Christians of speaking against this place. They rejected Christ because he spoke against this place. God will, not one stone will be, uh, will remain upon another. Jesus said that. And so when they accuse the Christians, they say they spoke against Moses in this holy place. That's their accusation. And what Stephen is saying is, no, we're the ones who are like Moses. And the holy place was holy because God was there. The theophany. Now, when it comes to the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, Ichabod. Okay? Now, holiness is no longer a geographical location under the new covenant. Holiness is a people with circumcised hearts. Circumcised hearts. Holiness is anywhere in the whole world where someone 
comes to faith in Christ and they become saints, a holy people. You see, when the Roman army tore down the temple, 70 AD, Josephus has a lot of history that he wrote about when that happened. They didn't go in there and the holiness of God killed all the Roman soldiers. That would have happened some previous times. They wouldn't have been able to go in there. But it was Ichabod. They tore it down. They didn't have a problem. They were in there tearing it all apart, looking for little scraps of gold that they could use. So there's a dispute about this holy place. And Stephen's going to claim that this holy place is where God comes and it's a holy people. They were, Moses was, wasn't at the Temple Mount. He was out in the wilderness. Just an ordinary bush until God came. So there is another subplot going on in Acts. What exactly is the holy place? Now, Jesus prefigured this. Let me read Luke 19, 45 and 46. This prefigures judgment of the temple, which the Sanhedrin says, this holy place. Luke 19, 45, and he entered the temple, began to cast out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. Look with me to Luke 23, 45. Remember, Luke acts as a two-volume work. It helps us learn, helps us know. The themes in Luke come to completion many times in Acts. Luke 23, 45. Where is the holy place? That's the issue. 23, 45. The sun being obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. You got a mic. Eric, explain the significance of that. Yeah, there's a lot of significance there. The priest, the high priest member, could only go in the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so the only way to have atonement was him going in privately. Well, now, when the temple veil tears, it symbolizes access to all who believe. And now it's to Gentiles as well. And I know there's some debate as to which veil. There's two veils. There's an outer veil and an inner veil. Some think that the image is that the outer veil tore, symbolizing that there's no cutting off of the Gentiles. That the would exclude, of the Gentiles. Yeah, yeah, the Gentiles. But I think better is the imagery of the inner veil. And the idea then is, just as Bob is saying, you don't come now to find atonement at the temple. It's found in Messiah. Yeah. It's in Christ. That's, the, that's how you're made holy. You know, Bob, you remind me... Um, of a story that you gave to some students when you were doing apologetics. And it has to do with location and geography. And they were doing these labyrinths where they were walking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my debate with uh, Kimball. Yeah, exactly. And they thought that they were holier based on the location of the earth. Yeah, Kimball, I had written a little blurb on a public forum somewhere saying that all my research on immersion... Dan Kimball was the only one who said he believed in 
substitutionary atonement, which looking back at it makes him not a very good emergent. So Kimball emailed me because he, he was happy I said something good about him. And he said, oh, thanks for mentioning that. I do believe in substitutionary atonement, which we, now we know Rob Bell doesn't. But then he said, well, you know, you shouldn't be so harsh on when, when we have this labyrinth. We just take our Bible and carry it to, through the labyrinth, to the middle of the labyrinth. So we have a Bible. So then I asked him, and then he never got back to me. I said, so, Dan, are you saying that whatever passages you're reading in the Bible, once you got to the middle of the labyrinth, now they had some different meaning? Do they not mean what they'd say if you read them somewhere else? Never, he went silent because he couldn't answer that. The Bible, the holy words of the Bible are what they are because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit who inspired the biblical writers. Standing in the middle of a labyrinth doesn't change the meaning of the Bible. Doesn't make it more God's word. So the labyrinth, if anything, is a distraction. Try sitting at a desk in front of a computer. Maybe you understand better. Okay, so what exactly is holy? The, the veil is torn, signifying that the holiest place is no longer tied to some geography on the earth. 1 John 5, 19. The whole, we know that we are of God. The whole world lies in the power, exousia, of the evil one, of darkness. The whole world is under Satan. And when somebody comes to faith, they become a saint, a holy one. That is true no matter where on the earth they are. And if you could find the exact location the original holy place was, it wouldn't do anything. It would be any different anywhere else. I, as you know, I mentioned this pastor that got out of Iran. Here was a man jailed for years in solitary, and holiness was true, because he knew Christ, not because he was in a holy jail. No, in Acts 5, I, I don't have time to read this, but Acts 5, 18 to 21, the apostles were in jail. And it says the angel of the Lord opened the gates and took them out, told them to preach the gospel. Holiness found them right in the jail. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what city you're in. It doesn't matter how dark things are at your place of work. It doesn't matter if you're living in a country where the leaders are wicked. It won't make you less holy. If a pastor in jail in Iran is one of God's holy saints, I guess an American can be too. We'd like to have better leaders. I suggest voting, but they'll never change the location of holiness. False teachers think that we can create holiness 
by ruling over a geopolitical entity, like the Holy Roman Empire. You can't do it. The veil is torn too. God has come. He's poured out his spirit on all flesh, according to Joel. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, meaning speak for God. The lowliest, seemingly halting Christian who's not eloquent can speak holy words of messianic salvation. Stephen did. Thank God for the Stephens of the world. I want to encourage you as we close. Believe the promises of God. Understand where holiness comes from. And as you trust Christ, you, your fathers are the holy prophets, and particularly Moses, the prophets, and Jesus, the Messiah. We're standing in one accord with all the people whoever believed the promises of God. Let's believe them today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Stephen and his preaching about Moses and all these scriptures that you give us the chance to learn from. May we believe your promises. May we flee from wickedness. May we trust only in the shed blood of our Savior. May we proclaim your gospel with boldness. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.